So I want to start with a little reading here from Sue Monk Kidd on uh, The Secret Life of Bees. If the heat gets over 104 degrees in South Carolina, you have to go to bed. It's practically the law. Some people might see it as a shiftless behavior, but really, when you're lying down from the heat, we're giving our minds time to browse around for new ideas, wondering at the true aim of life, and generally letting things pop into our heads that need to. In the sixth grade, there was a boy in my class who had a steel plate in his skull and was always complaining how test answers could never get through to him. Our teacher would say, give me a break. In a way, though, the boy was right. Every human being on the face of the earth has a steel plate in his head. But if you lie down now and then and get still as you can, it will slide open like elevator doors, letting in all the secret thoughts that have been standing around so patiently, pushing the button for a ride to the top. The real trouble in life happens when those hidden doors stay closed for too long. But that's just my opinion. So uh, tonight I wanted to just uh, use this, uh, again, this image of the bird and um, this, uh, really this awareness of uh, both one side is the kind of wisdom side of, of uh, our uh, capacity to actually uh, see clearly. And uh, this piece around the heart that it actually uh, uh, needs to complement or uh, be held also in that. And if so, then these uh, ten paramitas are, are things that naturally function in us. Uh, that are not uh, something that um, uh, something that can be naturally known uh, just through uh, this simple practice, this practice of uh, awareness of mindfulness. So um, today I, I wrote a poem for you, as I like to do, keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> and I don't have to think about all the different things I could be doing. <laughs> so, uh, and part of it I was thinking this is, uh, uh, I have a really easy, my mind doesn't uh, remember everything so well, and I have uh, my two kids, uh, which uh, one is born on the spring solstice and the other on the uh, fall solstice, so that makes it really easy for me to remember their birthdays. So this is spring solstice, it is my son's birthday, also Quilly, manager Quilly's birthday. And I just, um, I thought about him and just honoring, you know, his, uh, uh, his uh, life. And, and he um, had the privilege to go with me to the Kailash and he's the one that made it around and I didn't, <laughs> you know? So it's kind of passing on the gauntlet of another Dharma bum. So, so let's see what happens. Spring Solstice. Sitting on the bench, the brazen turkey with the club foot. 
knowing the human predator suspended in these wandering yogis. Knowing somehow they are taken by something greater. Knowing their first utterances overheard only by themselves, dropping them only deeper, the silence of this impossible place. The white-tailed kite sitting so still, suspended above our valley, both wings in unison, hovering at the edge of its own in unsubstantialness, body still, eyes everywhere. Here, the visible and the invisible show us how our ego-mad mind dreams on and on, questioning what's real, who's real, heralding the ancient panic. Here on this ground, the waves break leaving you only sky, vast empty sky, a groundlessness that sparks the panic which lights the flame again. One wing which holds one above the valley, empty, maybe just emptiness. The other some old flame with its warmth and uncompromising light one holding the void, the other touching our world. You knew you came to die, seeing through all the fabricated selves, the warmth and light, only things left. Please take my hand. The world knows you. They have been waiting, sanity and compassion. Yesterday, this was me. Today, I'm not sure. So, um, I've been kind of exploring uh, this question about what is it that uh, is not seen? Uh, not spoken in some way. So I thought tonight I would sort of lean more on this wisdom side since uh, Marie spoke so beautifully about uh, this uh, capacity to uh, 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 look directly at the heart. So I'd like to just explore this with you, but to start, uh, this is really about the factors of awakening but also going back to Trudy's talk in the sense of talking about her teachers. And I wanted to just um, speak a, a few minutes about uh, some of my teachers and um, how in some way uh, they pass things on to me, which I still hold so dearly. Uh, first in the first years of my practice, um, I was involved in the Tibetan uh, practices, and, uh, but being somewhat uh, dyslexic and not being able to uh, remember 
the complexity of, of Sanskrit and some of the languaging, which it seemed all my friends were able to uh, work with. Uh, at one point with my teacher, Kali Rinpoche, where I lived in uh, this uh, little village in the, near Darjeeling in the, um, eastern India in the Himalayas there, uh, I asked to give back my um, Genyan, which was my novice uh, Tibetan uh, monastic uh, vows, uh, so that I could go and, and practice uh, in a uh, Theravada monastery. And what I ended up doing was going uh, to Bodhgaya, uh, where the Buddha was enlightened, and there was an ashram there, Gandhi ashram. And there was a teacher, Anagarika Manendra, there. And um, he taught me just simply that he was been a bhakti for 15 years, a Krishna bhakti, was a, really a man of heart and uh, kind of this uh, innocence about him. And then this uh, fabulous kind of, uh, what, what can I word, trippy mind. <laughs> he had a really trippy mind. You know? <laughs> and I had my friend uh, there, Joseph Goldstein, who would, uh, he would go back to his, uh, go back and forth uh, uh, from uh, his uh, uh, family's place in the Caskills to India and study with Anagarika Manindra. And he was a, I say, in a way, a great translator for uh, the Anagarika. Uh, one of the things was uh, you would go and you would practice, and it was a simple practice with all these sort of papaya trees around, and, and uh, there weren't a lot of uh, students or people there at that time. And he would begin to talk, and he would talk uh, very much from the uh, suttas many times, but he also had this um, what, uh, this interest uh, in the invisible, uh, the world uh, that we don't see. And so when he would talk, uh, he, there was always this thing about, oh, there's all these devas and, and uh, sort of uh, different beings that would come and listen uh, while uh, the Dharma was being uh, spoken. And I call that because he spent so many, it seems like, hours in that um, the details of uh, uh, the, the invisible world, uh, the world that uh, may parallel this, I don't know. But so much of it was about suspending our judgment about uh, what we don't know, and that there is actually more than uh, what is seen here. Uh, so I just want to, through his tradition, honor that, uh, the unseen, that um, it is really kind of the, the a, really a mystical piece that is in, these, uh, in the heart of, uh, of sometimes the simplicity of these teachings. Uh, but the way I would like to kind of frame this tonight is very much about the uh, use of, uh, uh, like kids, a, um, a seesaw. And the seesaw has a center. And that center, uh, we could see, I have to use images uh, to uh, work with these factors. Uh, there are really 37 factors, but I want to 
uh, my mind doesn't go that far, so I can just work with seven, you know, and, and that's uh, as far as uh, I can go at this point. But um, know that it's a very complex um, lining up of uh, these, a balancing of these uh, qualities uh, in our practice that is something that brings uh, us uh, uh, close to what you could say is the middle way. And there are really two factors here that we're working with. It's kind of one of them I see as kind of the wild mind and the other is the lethargic mind. That's one way of looking at it in a simple form. Another one is to look at it as factors that are arousing, that bring uh, uh, some kind of um, uh, the energetic qualities. Uh, there's the energetic qualities of the mind. There's the energetic qualities of the heart and of the body. Uh, there's also factors on the other side to balance that are the stabilizing factors. And we're always uh, sitting here uh, trying to find uh, what is it that needs uh, attention right now of these factors. Uh, the center, I see it as this uh, triangle. And that triangle uh, is the fulcrum or the center point and that center point, this sati, this mindfulness, uh, this awareness, uh, holds this. Uh, and that uh, we first have to recognize the kind of qualities that uh, this mindfulness, uh, uh, that it self-recognizes. And that self-recognizing first is that with this mindfulness is this clear comprehension, this uh, capacity uh, that the mindfulness itself is just a momentary memory of. It really is uh, instantaneous awareness uh, that simply arises uh, due to uh, these conditions. And then there is the quality of um, understanding uh, that is built in to the mindfulness, not something you have to do, which is nice about this. This is not uh, the actual centerpiece. is not something you have to do anything about, but remember uh, to bring uh, the mind to this uh, wakefulness, this awareness uh, of what is occurring. That clarity uh, is based on the fact that uh, the uh, insight uh, that comes from this recognition uh, is based on these, uh, what they call the characteristics. These characteristics are really uh, the first of these is just the awareness of impermanence. No. Uh, beginning to recognize that uh, what the mind does all the time is, is it's always trying to frame its experience uh, in the language or in some kind of image or form that allows it to stabilize and, and create some kind of safety. You know, that's what it's doing. But is that so? No. 
And what we're doing here is actually exploring. Uh, exploring uh, uh, how things appear to us internally and externally. And this quality of uh, our capacity to clearly comprehend uh, what it is that's happening now in that moment-to-moment experience. Uh, We also see the uh, experience that when there's any sense of there's this flow, this river that's happening of experience that we're constantly trying to concretize on some level, so we'll feel safe. And that uh, we get caught up. Uh, Sometimes it's memory or sometimes we start uh, leaning into the future next week, somewhere, next month. And when that leaning happens, what does it feel like? Is it here? Or is there something else going on? And uh, when it's not here, uh, what's your experience of it? Uh, Many times at the beginning of it, there's some kind of pleasantness that happens. But if you stay with it, what's it like to be leaning forward for a long time? I think you know. And simply this, again, this capacity to recognize the unsatisfactoriness, uh, the nature of when we're pushing away or we're leaning into something, that there is another place to sit. And that what we're practicing here is sitting in a center uh, with this mindfulness and this clear comprehension and this awareness of what it is that's happening and how it happens. In that recognition, there is actually uh, moments where we sort of concretize uh, through our thinking and our, uh, sometimes our imagining, uh, some kind of contraction that uh, identifies ourselves as a kind of I, me, mine experience. But there are so many moments, so many moments when, uh, with this mindfulness, when we're really awake, uh, that there is the awareness and there's an object that arises in it. It can be uh, uncomfortable, it can be pleasant, but it just simply arises uh, in a um, recognition uh, without the I, me, or mine. And it happens a lot. But the fixation, the fixation happens that we uh, actually believe uh, that somehow everything is based, uh, addicted to the fact that our experience has to have a charge on it. Kind of the liking and the disliking. And so what happens when that happens? 
We don't notice uh, these uh, moments uh, where there is just simple experience. You know? And the practice here is first getting to know the kind of the flow of things and how we cause ourselves um, what our own problems. And the question of who is it happening to? Is it? And then the practice itself, then we start to relax and say, well, um, what's it like when I'm just here? When awareness itself uh, holds the experience. What's that like? What happens? So we're learning this. I think sometimes it's sort of the hard way, uh, just simply because the mind is uh, so obsessed and fixed on the charge it gets off of uh, experiences that are um, that bring some kind of confirmation that I'm here that I am here. And the question is, is that enough? Is that enough? And the workings of this uh, practice are the balancing. And so this is sort of the center point. And that center point sort of holds these characteristics of uh, kind of recognizing uh, the actual flow and how we grasp onto the flow and we suffer for that flow, for trying to stop it or block it in some way. Uh, and that, um, is there some fixed thing that uh, is identifiable in that flow that you can identify? as uh, something that is continuous as self. Uh, does it exist? Or is this just moments? You know, a question. So we have this kind of pyramid here that's holding uh, this teeter-totter. And uh, we have on one side uh, these qualities of the arousing factors. And sometimes we need these arising uh, Factors. And if the mind is clear and balanced, uh, then these are all uh, working properly. Now, what happens is that uh, one of the beauties of the, the Western uh, mind, I find, is that it has this great quality. And I think of people that uh, maybe they change religion or they uh, come here because they have been um, somehow uh, this quality of investigation, they aren't getting the answers they want. And so they seek. And they seek um, 
uh, through this quality, this quality of investigation. And that investigation is something of the mind. You know, uh, this quality of mind uh, that can uh, kind of question uh, where it's at in its reality in some way. Wonderful quality. Again, uh, I'd say it's extreme when it goes out of balance, uh, what happens? If there's too much investigation, there's too much, um, you know, uh, energetic quality of the mind, that it actually creates anxiousness. Uh, when it's not stabilized. So this is one, it's part of the mind. Now we can look at the body and uh, traditionally it's simply spoken of as uh, the factor of energy. And that we have to have enough energy as we have to have the right amount of investigation uh, to approach uh, this, uh, this quality of looking into the flow and the complexity of how we grasp, and the, uh, the kind of emptiness, the truth of, of how this or who this is happening to. And there are many ways, you know, I know in my first years, I, uh, uh, my sadhu years, I um, uh, lived on the, as a kind of Hindu monk on the Ganges and uh, with my shaved head and this idea that somehow through a certain physical yoga, particularly Kundalini yoga, that I could actually uh, bring myself to awakening. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I couldn't see clearly. And I've always had a thing about the fact that one of the places I've had to work the most is uh, that um, I'm a delusional type. And being a delusional type, uh, I really have to look at how uh, the quality and the discipline of how the mind works uh, and how uh, I can find uh, some kind of balance and clarity uh, in seeing in this way of um, uh, physical energy, uh, I like, um, it's like in the walking practice or in uh, yoga, or uh, sometimes you have to take a fast walk uh, to bring the energy correctly. And one thing that I've also found over the years is uh, sometimes I've tried so hard and what I really needed was to physically rest, to stop and, uh, and give myself permission uh, for the body to balance itself. And sometimes that was, you know, a 10-minute nap for me, which I know some people can't do, but I can. And it's, uh, uh, again, this understanding that has to come, this listening from the inside of what is it I need right now that will bring this into balance, bring this teeter-totter up. You know. Again, if there's too much energy in you, uh, in a sense, uh, force the body uh, to uh, 
respond strongly, then what happens? It's hard to sit. You get really restless. And we have to find some way to bring balance to that. So that's the body, that's the energy. And the third one uh, has to do with uh, this word uh, joy. And sometimes I think one of the factors that uh, we may not uh, put so much emphasis on, but is really that of the heart, this uh, quality of of uh, when we um, we bring kindness uh, to our practice and recognize that uh, our nature, our very nature, uh, has this built into it. When the mindfulness is there, that joy is available. Now, sometimes the word is translated as, I think, rapture. And again, uh, too much of it, uh, too much exuberance, then uh, we uh, lose the, this quality of investigation to see into uh, this, uh, this stream of experience and see the unsatisfactoriness of it and the selflessness of it. Yeah. So we have to keep this, the arousing factors in balance and we have to figure out what we need. Yeah. Uh, there's also the other side of this, the stabilizing factors. And the stabilizing factors, uh, first of them is just this quality that we bring to the sitting itself. And that we call it tranquility. You know, the tranquility is also, in this case, it is a practice of the body, that we, we bring our bodies here and we still them. And through stilling them, then there's a stabilization that happens. And that stabilization, is, again, uh, helps balance uh, uh, when there is um, possibly uh, too much restlessness or... discursiveness in the sense that the body, uh, we keep shifting and moving. And there is this quality of uh, bringing the body to stillness uh, so that it can stabilize itself. Uh, we can also, Uh, what um, Gill called composure the other night, sometimes translated as uh, concentration, uh, one-pointedness. Uh, I like the word collecting, that we actually sit and collect ourselves. Uh, we can do that with the breath, or uh, we can uh, just uh, give ourselves permission to uh, experience uh, the wholeness of the body or using the metaphrases, uh, something that just uh, allows us uh, to settle the mind and the heart or the breathing or the body 
these all are an essential factor here. With this collecting, uh, it's possible to sit and uh, find that uh, there are deep states, uh, deep states of really one-pointedness that allow us to experience uh, a different sensual field that's here. something uh, somewhat outside of our uh, pedestrian, uh, usual experience of the sensual spheres. And can help support our capacity uh, to uh, see into uh, how this all operates. And it is a thing of the mind. Now, the third of these stabilizing factors uh, is uh, this word equanimity, which uh, Jack so uh, beautifully spoke about. And it is uh, this quality of heart that uh, we can uh, find uh, the capacity uh, to stabilize uh, in kindness uh, without a sense of uh, sometimes can happen where um, when it's uh, there's uh, in the heart uh, as a stabilizing factor that we find that there's a, a flatness, kind of everything's uh, not the same, or is the same uh, to our experience in some way. And that this, actually, this quality uh, uh, brings a stabilization, not a flatness, but actually a aliveness. Uh, uh, to our experience, a richness. Uh, a depth. Uh, so the heart actually uh, is helping to stabilize the, uh, these factors of awakening. We're always going to be working with these. Uh, they are things that uh, sometimes teachers can help you with, but uh, mostly it's this quality of listening, of saying, oh, you know, uh, I see that, uh, you know, there's a restlessness. I, I need to actually make the resolve to not move for a little while and see if I can't stabilize uh, the, uh, the body to support this tranquility. Or there's a dullness, and, and one notices that one is really not so interested, and one's been here for, you know, three weeks or seven weeks, and, and um, one thinks, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, I've got everything I need at this point. And I challenge that. You know, there is this capacity. You have all worked so hard 
uh, to actually a, a kind of question, a question the very nature of your experience. You know, that's where this mindfulness goes so deep. You know, it has that clear comprehension. It has the awareness of these, uh, we know these uh, characteristics. But there's even a deeper level to this. We call them uh, the subtle uh, characteristics. And the first one is just this word sunyata, which you've heard this word emptiness over and over again. You know, it's a, kind of one of the qualified words in uh, a kind of Buddhist literature uh, in all schools. I've always thought of it as I went to, this was a, when I was in India, this was a, Two, two, a little over two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I went to, I was living in Dharamsala and I would go to class every day and, and uh, I was there for about a month and, and um, I went in to uh, see this, uh, uh, it was actually my birthday, my 60th birthday. And I sort of had sat in the back of the room and I'm usually not too, uh, what, I don't like to sit up front too much. So I was sitting in the back and uh, finally made myself known. And he said, oh, I hear you teach. And so the Geshe, uh, I was invited to uh, come and uh, have a uh, kind of a little question and answer period with him. And he asked me, what, what are you doing here? You know? <laughs> And um, I said, oh, I'm re there are two things I really wanted to know about. And I, I came here to do this year in Asia and sit and, and uh, uh, ponder two questions. And one question was emptiness. And the other question was this whole thing around karma. You know, and uh, the complexity of how that is. And uh, his answer, he didn't answer me. You know, he didn't say where, he said, um, uh, you teach. And I went, yes, and he said, oh, uh, well, there are four things we teach. It makes you and I the same. He said, uh, there are the four. And one is impermanence, one is suffering, one is selflessness, and one is nirvana. And if you teach those things, then you and I are the same, you know. And so that was the answer to emptiness, you know. Uh, so I had to sit and kind of ponder what he meant or what he didn't mean by that, you know. And so I began this, uh, this kind of process of uh, trying to, uh, in some way, uh, it had to do with a breaking down uh, the appearance of things, you know. I had created in my kind of mind, I, I look around and I make things by language. You know, by Zafu, you know, person, painting, lights. Everything is qualified in, in a world of language. And I realized the practice itself, one of the things I have worked so hard was to suspend to suspend some of my belief systems about things, and also eventually to suspend language so that I began to look at things as simply uh, that that knows. 
and these sense doors, including the thinking. Without qualifying, without having to somehow um, construct. So this is really, it was a deconstruction process of breaking down how things appeared. And what's so difficult is everything kind of co-merges, you know, all the appearances of things. And yet the process there is where uh, the mind uh, has to let go of its uh, uh, preconception and its ability, actually, which is an ability to um, know it through the language, not through the experience. And the practice is to come back to the experience. And the experience is, again, goes back to these very simple things. You know, the flow. You know, uh, that this is simply uh, a flow of experience. uh, That there is uh, an awareness, or uh, I like the word awareness, but you can also use the word consciousness. uh, And these objects of experience uh, that happen in these sense doors in the mind. And we have this tendency to freeze them and um, uh, try to make them knowable and safe. And what we're doing here is actually, uh, in essence, we're threatening you. We're threatening uh, this sense of how it is or who you think you are. Show us how our ego-mad mind dreams on and on, questioning what's real, who's real, heralding the ancient panic, heralding the ancient panic, you know, that we reconstruct ourselves over and over again uh, in our own image. And the question is to suspend that. Can you uh, not do that? I'm just pointing, I'm pointing it's possible to actually begin to uh, break down the constructs, the constructs of appearances, the constructs of who we think we are. Uh, Back to kind of this uh, bare experience. So this word, emptiness, uh, maybe, because uh, emptiness in, that I have tried to play with is kind of a negative on things. You know, the absence of. You know. But also, uh, in every, all this that you see and you hear and you smell and you taste and you think, uh, it's true, it's just a flow uh, of awareness and its objects. But it means also that that emptiness has the potential, has always has the potential for everything. So there is, it's not a negative, it's actually the potential for everything to happen. It's alive. It leaves things completely alive, this quality of not fixating or holding it, not making it into something, 
not, uh, you know, uh, Pema Chodron says, uh, holding on to the inner tube of self, you know, in this flow. You know, we don't have to do that. You know, make it we can let go. You know, and see if uh, we can float without the struggle. You know, maybe that was our nature. That ultimately we could let all this go in some way and that we would naturally float. Oh, isn't that nice? You know. I like this. Uh, this was from Trumpa on the Tathagata Garbha, which is the kind of Buddha nature, and he describes as the Buddhas who have already gone beyond exist in us. The Buddhas that have gone beyond exist in us. So uh, when uh, we recognize uh, that uh, this is all potential. And if this is all potential, then uh, there's no separateness between, uh, you know, this, uh, I like, they're sometimes called Buddha nature or essence or Buddha essence, or uh, I like the translation basic goodness, you know, that these beings have been basic goodness from time beginning. And that exists in us. When we finally kind of give up, we uh, surrender our uh, need to manufacture, to somehow hold this in captivity instead of liberating it from moment to moment. So there's the sunyata, which is there. There's also another word that's tatat, which uh, translates as a suchness. You know, uh, it is. This is it. This is everything right now. It's a wonderful word. It just says, it may be just a part of a flow, and that it is the potential of everything of this uh, 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 greatness that we are. But it's here. It's not not here. You know? So we can't disappear. We have to completely show up, you know, say yes. To this. And then there's a word which is really, uh, to me, the kind of quintessential atamayata, which uh, there's many translations I've read, but not there with the object. Okay? So there is the awareness. And you can see that's behind your eyes. You know what I'm talking about. You've been playing with this, you know, and it's there. And it's that that, uh, you know, I think in Thai yoga, the there with the knowing. Um, that awareness, not there with an object, you know, not separate, not two. Uh, so the awareness is itself. 
You are that awareness. that awareness doesn't sit alone because of the suchness and the potential of all this. It doesn't sit alone. And like that um, uh, white-tailed kite that's, I saw it sitting up there, uh, sort of uh, by the creek there, sitting up there, and it was just it was still. Its wings were flapping, but its body was still. And on one side, uh, this clarity of being uh, that we work with here is there. But the other side is that uh, the suchness of things, saying yes to this, you know, uh, the truth of the totality of this uh, is great kindness, is great compassion. Uh, it uh, is the fuel and so uh, it has to burn, you know, and it's true that uh, when we talk about compassion, we talk about uh, the truth of the first noble truth. That uh, uh, due to causes and conditions, that we all make up all this different things about how everything is. You know, I always say if we could just take and have a little, uh, this is now, this may be true someday, where they have little cameras hooked up to our brains and we could kind of see all the uh, different storylines that were going on here. Wow. We worked with the body of the generosity and uh, this uh, discipline of virtue, the practices of renunciation and wisdom and the uh, energy and effort and the patience and the endurance, uh, the truthfulness and the determination, uh, the loving kindness and the equanimity, the body of the bird itself. Spring solstice. Sitting on the bench. The brazen turkey with the club foot. 
knowing. The human predator, suspended in these wandering yogis, knowing somehow they are taken by something greater. Knowing their first utterances, overheard only by themselves, dropping them only deeper. The silence of this impossible place, the white-tailed kite, sitting so still, suspended above our valley, both wings in unison, hovering at the edge of its own insubstantialness, body still, eyes everywhere, here the visible and the invisible show us how our ego-mad mind dreams on and on, questioning what's real, who's real, heralding the ancient panic, heralding the ancient panic. Here on this ground, the waves break, leaving you only sky, vast empty sky, a groundlessness that sparks the panic, which lights the flame again. A groundlessness that sparks the panic, which lights the flame again. One wing holds one above the valley, empty, maybe just emptiness. In the other, some old flame with its warmth and uncompromising light. One holding the void, the other to touch our world. You knew you came to die. Seeing through all the fabricated selves, the warmth, the light, only things left. Please take my hand. The world knows you. They have been waiting. Sanity and compassion. Yesterday, this was me. Today, not sure. Let's just sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.